Welcome to the GovLaunch podcast. GovLaunch is the wiki for local government innovation. And on this podcast, we're sharing the stories of local government innovators and their efforts to build smarter governments. I'm Lindsay Pika Alfano, co-founder of GovLaunch and your host. Community engagement is top of mind for many local governments, and it should be. Local governments continue to grapple with communication strategies around COVID and the vaccine and are working with tightening budgets while continuing to face pressure to innovate at the same pace as private sector companies. Building and maintaining trust with your community is key. So today, we're going to talk about how a local government is working toward more playful engagement to help drive creativity and build trust in their community. Joshua Silver from the DC Office of Planning joins me along with Dr. Benjamin Stokes, director of the Playful City Lab at American University. We'll tap into some methodologies around more playful engagement and how you could leverage some of these strategies for your own engagement with very little budget. Thank you both for joining me today. Can you each quickly introduce yourselves and share a bit about your role? Josh, I'll start with you. Hi, Lindsay. My name is Josh Silver. I'm the lead planner for strategic initiatives and partnerships uh, at the DC Office of Planning. And thanks so much for inviting me to participate in today's uh, GovLaunch podcast. I'm excited to hear from Dr. Stokes and join him um, in this conversation and share this um, with, with your audience. I'm um, a little bit about my role and responsibilities. I think that my role is somewhat unique in the context of uh, local government planning. Um, I serve really as the office of DC Office of Planning's chief builder and cultivator of external partnerships and relationships. And much of my job is really centered on innovation and testing ideas to advance um, our organization's mission, different projects and or priorities. My responsibilities really focus on shaping and implementing placemaking and public space planning efforts um, and think about how to optimize design, deliver projects and programs that highlight neighborhood identity, um, enhance civic life, and really importantly, strengthen community cohesion and experience. Exciting. And you, Benjamin? Hello, great to be here. My name is Benjamin Stokes and I am the founder of the Playful City Lab at American University, where I'm an assistant professor and I also teach game design in our game design center. So we, we are one of the top ranked game design uh, schools for master's students uh, in the world according to the Princeton Review. More importantly, we bring uh, an interest in cities and place uh, to game design, which I think is a really interesting emerging area of practice for games. Everyone knows that games are, are an enormous part of our culture, are an enormous industry on the entertainment side in terms of AAA. Of course, sports are already huge in cities with things like neighborhood parks or stadium. But the idea that we might use some of the energy of game design in other areas has really been catching on a lot uh, in different ways in the past decade, whether it's uh, catchy terms like gamification or whether it's deeper ideas um, like uh, actually thinking about games and the way that games work as, as we design our civic engagement systems and public events. So that's a, a really fun part of my work is doing research around games, teaching students around games and working with uh, amazing city governments, including right here in DC. Josh, in terms of how DC has traditionally approached engagement around planning, I imagine it's pretty consistent with other local governments with a combination of in-person consultation, surveys, et cetera. Recently, though, you've made the shift to get away from this same old and try some more creative forms of engagement. 
Can you talk more about what prompted this and share an example or two of some creative ways DC planning has engaged with the community early on with this vision? Yeah, great question. I would say the engagement approach in the District of Columbia is consistent with other local governments. And as you said, you know, using a combination of the in-person meetings and of course, because of COVID, we've become increasingly reliant on surveys, more so I would say than ever ever before. We do things too where we've often supplemented our engagement with neighborhood or site walk tours of different places like that. Today's conversation is not to suggest that planners and designers and local governments should deviate from these traditional approaches. Um, in my opinion, there's still critical need for community involvement using those methods. But mo like most things, there's opportunities for really improving how we engage. Um, our communities. I think at this point, we know what our pitfalls and our challenges are of applying our traditional community engagement approaches. So how do we innovate and how do we think outside the box? Um, and one of the applications that we found to be extremely useful uh, in the District of Columbia includes the integration of something called creative placemaking and creative placemaking into our community planning efforts. I could do an entire uh, podcast about creative placemaking work, but in short, I'll say um, for those that are less familiar um, with the term creative placemaking, or I like to think of it as an a movement. Um, you know, for the DC Office of Planning, we really define it as this arts and culture forward platform um, through which the DC Office of Planning engages community and plans by creating experiences that connect people and inspire action uh, and creativity and really celebrate our neighborhoods. And so for the last six years, uh, we've been using creative placemaking and it's really provided or served as an important nexus uh, for how we conduct our community engagement. And so the application of creative placemaking to community planning efforts is really demonstrated in our work, increased participation and importantly, the involvement of community members who might not otherwise participate in these traditional community meetings or, or want to or have the time to take a survey or attend a meeting. And one thing that's really inherent to creative placemaking is the notion of play. And creative placemaking projects that I've been involved with um, include things such as public space activation with games and activities that force people to make decisions in some instances about specific things about their neighborhoods, videos that people interact with or form opinions about. In these examples, creative placemaking has really served as a proxy for helping engage community stakeholders in the development of a community or neighborhood planning. I also want to make one less obvious but important point about play and gaming and city planning. Um, and simply put, it makes planning and community engagement fun. Um, and that's something that is really important, I think, we take for granted. Let's, how do we make something fun? And, you know, people are generally happier to participate. They're gen we found that they're more generally happy to give and or share uh, information um, when we're applying this creative placemaking approach. And, you know, including a game component in, in the engagement also really has, has demonstrated it, it adds this element of authenticity um, to our process. It allows people, um, in the video example I just cited, it gives them an opportunity to see themselves in the engagement. And it's not just a government person like myself um, who is writing on a board what I'm hearing or a notebook, or you're, it's just, you're not just a statistic in a survey. And so the, being seen, I think, in this, in this using play is, is really important. And finally, the thing that I like most about play and game and engagement is what happens after the engagement is done. Um, from my own observations and discussions with community members and other stakeholders who have participated in these things, people tend to remember the game or the experience and often more in a positive context. Um, and so they continue to discuss what has happened uh, at the meeting uh, or how they chose to make that decision um, that they did. And they just speak more positively about sometimes difficult or contentious topics or subjects. Community and citizen engagement have consistently been our top searches on GovLaunch since the start of the pandemic and well into 2021. 
As you know, we just wrapped up a six-week series on leading citizen engagement tools in the space to help these local governments navigate the demand for more digital services to engage. That said, a lot of the work we're going to talk about this week and next is cultural, really a mindset shift in how we're even thinking about engagement. As you put it last time we spoke, D.C. is part of this larger playful cities movement. Can you explain that more? Sure, yeah. The district has been intentional about integrating play into its policies and planning efforts. And there's sort of two things that I'd like to hit on um, as it relates to that. Um, one is from a policy perspective, and the other is really from an actual on-the-ground project. From a policy perspective, um, the Office of Planning has been engaged in a multi-year process um, to amend the city's comprehensive, or some people call it the long-range plan, for the District of Columbia. And as part of that effort, we've included new information about play in the, in the comprehensive plan. Um, and there's a section in our comprehensive plan, in our urban design element, which is kind of how our, one of the pieces of the plan, called Play Everywhere. And I have to give credit to my colleagues in the design division for really developing this particular piece of it. But um, it's even playing a bigger role now as we do more engagement in our communities. But the play, the, the point of the play everywhere um, part of the comprehensive plan is that play is a universal experience about bringing people, different people together. And, you know, it's about helping children learn and promoting better physical and mental health for all residents. And those are things that we aspire to do with the communities that we work with as planners, as designers. When play is really thoughtfully designed into the public realm, it creates enriching or memorable public spaces and facilitates interactions um, and community building among residents of diverse backgrounds and ages. And that lends itself back to our community engagement. But we also know that we have more work to do. And in encouraging play in public spaces requires these policies and these actions um, that can address multiple challenges, whether they be physical or even regulatory challenges. 47% of district households um, have difficulty accessing playgrounds within a quarter mile of their, of their home. And so the comprehensive plan includes these policies and actions um, to help make play in the district more frequent and importantly, equitable. And then finally, a project that we've been working on called Playable Art. Um, this is a partnership between um, my office, the DC Office of Planning, as well as the District's Commission of Arts and Humanities. And we've been engaged in this multi-year partnership to design and fabricate and install playable sculptures in neighborhoods um, that have limited open or green space or ac um, access to recreation spaces or centers. And so we've completed this installation of these three playable art sculptures. Um, and if I could, I would love to be able to show them to you um, right now, but I can't. You've engaged with a local university to help make engagement more playful in DC. How did the DC Office of Planning connect with the American University Game Center and how has this relationship evolved? Yeah, the connection was uh, through an event that uh, Dr. Stokes was involved with, where some of my Office of Planning colleagues um, were able to, to attend. That really started the point of connection and getting our, our agency to begin to think about, well, you know, what is this gaming and what is play all about and how can we leverage this? How can we be using this? And going back to what we talked about earlier about thinking outside the box. Um, and through subsequent conversations and, and sharing some, some ideas and some information, we, we realized that um, there was an opportunity for us to, to collaborate and partner together with an in-the-district uh, university. So uh, Dr. Stokes and I started to have a number of conversations, um, exchanging some ideas um, and kind of building up uh, one another's knowledge, actually, about um, kind of the work that the Office of Planning was doing and what we kind of were envisioning um, for a, a playful partnership, for lack of better terms. From there, we began to establish our partnership um, and start to be able to work together on a couple different initiatives. Yeah, it's been a, a fascinating journey. Um, I, I think that the university perspective is partly about bringing some, not just rigor, 
but also taking the idea of play seriously. Um, just an example of this, if you were to go back to 2000, that was not a time where you could get a PhD in game design. It's not a time when traditional disciplines uh, would have accepted that as a serious area of study. Um, but things have, have really radically changed. And I think it's partly because we've had to step back from how close games are to our culture and our hearts. Uh, in the history of, of human society, there is no culture that doesn't have games as part of their culture. Quite often, we separate out serious work and things like planning, where we have to make big decisions from play, which sometimes we say that's an affair for the children. But of course, if you were actually to go and look at how games work uh, and look at very high levels, one of the things that differentiates, I think, high-performing companies uh, and government agencies uh, is that they give themselves some room to be playful. Uh, even in some of the least expected places, there's some great case studies of how the military has actually uh, used scenario planning in playful ways, which is basically doing games about what if we went here with our army or over here with our army to, to think about the future. Um, and, and I think that that's act, there are actually histories in this in major corporations, in, in big parts of our federal government, but at the city level, uh, it's been really hit or miss. Uh, there were some efforts in the 1970s as part of um, the uh, a number of different movements to engage different offices in the city with each other and build empathy to do things like gather in gymnasiums and have uh, the head of police role play as the head of the schools and the school district head uh, be somebody who uh, played the role of the mayor. Um, this idea that we need empathy at a systems level, that it's about where you're embedded in a decision-making perspective in a system is something that I think games do better than anything else. Games in the, at, that, at that approach are almost like a simulation, but with a playful perspective that lets you relax a little bit and not just try to reinforce or double down on your biases. They, they help you actually open your eyes and think about a different point in the system. I think that this past summer with all of the uh, intense pressure on cities to think about police reform um, and to think about how protests are part of accountability around uh, police action is such an interesting moment to say, is it just that we demand some changes in policy or do we also need different empathy about what does it mean to be a police chief versus uh, doing social work versus mental health services versus DC's effort to change its homeless shelter? Because the truth is they're probably related in some way. And this kind of systems thinking is actually at the heart of how games work. Um, games use rules to structure play. Uh, and I think the, the, the interesting thing as we come into a digital age is that quite often uh, we are trying to think about how to structure things that didn't seem structurable. Uh, we're, we're using code to structure how people move through streets. Uh, we're using AI to try and structure uh, what, where we're going to invest in, in, in uh, all sorts of interesting ways on the private sector and increasing the government. And so I, I wanted to give this kind of frame to play to first show that it has a long history but that we have cultural blinders to taking it seriously. Uh, and that once we start taking it seriously, we realize in many ways it's already here. But and here's the last point. We often don't have the language to take it seriously in our professional training. And, and even people that play massive numbers of hours of games don't necessarily have the critical vocabulary to uh, talk about them in ways that are actually productive. And this is essential when we're translating it to city work. So when we're thinking about bringing playfulness into planning, into placemaking. 
Um, quite often, especially at, at higher levels, we, we don't have that kind of training. It's not part of how we train planning professionals, for example. I would argue that it is especially important as we head into an era of, of what we've talked about as things like smart cities and engagement, because there's such a pull towards a kind of efficiency mindset, um, which doesn't intend to be this way, but happens to be actually very exclusionary of play. And, it, and in that way, it actually undermines public engagement and undermines participation. A lot of our smart city systems are built for city government and they are anti-engagement. They undermine engagement. They, they are, are alienating to the people we wanna be engaging. Uh, so I think that more than ever, we need to be taking some of the ideas of play seriously. And, and for me, it's been so fun to work with Josh because he'll just call me up out of the blue and be like, did you hear this, this weird article? Or do you wanna help us out with this project that we're doing next week? It's been a great back and forth. Similarly, I'll pitch him on things all the time. Uh, he sent me something from the Knight Foundation. I was like, oh, I know people there, but they're doing this interesting thing with Pokemon Go, looking at how uh, cities are actually reappropriating the game and making, changing the rules, changing the content, doing big partnerships, um, 100,000 people events uh, involving Pokemon Go. And I, and I am getting a grant from them. So thanks, Josh, uh, getting Knight Foundation funds over to the American University Game Center. Um, we, we were flown out to uh, San Jose, uh, to Philadelphia, uh, went to Akron, went to Boston, looked at how a bunch of different cities were repurposing Pokemon Go for things like placemaking, uh, things like moving people across specific cultural neighborhoods where they wanted more exchange. So it's, it's partly about that kind of mobility of people that, that play can do, um, but it's also about that idea of place as a kind of social construct. How do we tell the story of place that brings people in? So it's been a really fun journey with the DC Office of Planning. And can you explain more of what you all do at the Playful City Lab? Yes. Our lab is focused uh, specifically on play at the local level. Um, and, and this is, universities often work uh, you know, five years into the future, we're thinking about what's the next area of growth. Um, the Playful City Lab looks at the fact that things like Pokemon Go uh, are, are arising as a possibility and have opened a new conversation with city government. There's still a lot in city government like, wait, wasn't that fad? Is Pokemon Go? Actually, no, 2020 Pokemon Go earned record revenues. It is still very much here. It is just not in the headlines. And a lot of folks in government have, have kind of tuned it out, stopped paying attention. But actually, these games are still, they are massive economies. They are drivers of how people are organizing their behavior. Our lab both studies uh, commercial games at, at large scale, and we study the making, the kind of design of play uh, and how digital and physical systems can intertwine. Um, we're really interested in how we can kind of democratize the game design process to help more cities uh, engage in building playful systems. Because uh, quite often when we build a digital system with like a, a contract uh, to a big agency, the procurement agencies are not at all built for doing things in a playful fashion. Again, this is a little of like the smart cities and how we build like efficient systems versus people that do play. Almost all the playful stuff that cities are doing is with whiteboards and totally analog. And, and as soon as it becomes digital, it like sucks all the play out of it, which is ironic because... The, the games industry is a massive digital space. There's so many people that are doing digital things with play, uh, but not cities. Cities mostly like suck the play out anytime they go digital. So I think it's a really interesting challenge for us as a university and kind of innovation center to build products, to work with different partners and think about, well, when can the digital and physical start mixing in little ways? Ironically, sometimes when we work with, with city government, uh, the first step is to help them legitimize the analog things they're doing as having real impact. 
because sometimes what happens is they know that they're important and they've invested in them, but they don't talk about them in the same breath as the, as the things that, that are accomplishing hard, measurable outcomes. This is true with a lot of engagement work. It's, it's harder to measure engagement work and play is definitely on that side. So it's, it's part of just the challenge with engagement. But playful stuff, again, because we tend to put it in, in, with kids, we measure it in terms of playgrounds and we measure it in terms of stadiums, but we, we lose it a lot as, a, as something we invest in as something like a playful way to do data collection at a farmer's market. Oh, playful! Why would we invest in a playful strategy there? How would that work? Uh, and so uh, I think this is legitimizing that analog play and then thinking, how does that, that relate to digital strategies uh, for both conversation among between residents, digital strategies for data collection, digital strategies for uh, sharing and circulating stories uh, about place, uh, digital strategies for having residents contribute in some way to the digital side of our cities and, and the data profile that we're all building as part of investing in place. So there's a lot of different sides to what play can be. And our lab is uh, interested in, in moving that conversation forward at the intersection of physical and digital. Local governments listening in are going to be at varying stages of engagement and communications ranging from very basic to extremely complex. Let's start with an easy example of how we should be looking to add gamifying engagement or making engagement more playful as governments may be using some of these strategies you'd recommend already without even knowing it. Yeah, well, first, just a, a tiny terminology note on gamification. Um, this has actually been like a movement, which I'm, I'm kind of like doing battle with. So pardon me, Lindsay, to put on my battle helmet for just, just a second here. The, the term has partly gotten some cred uh, in, in marketing circles as something where we can add points and add badges. And then suddenly people will do what we say. Uh, like we'll, we'll add points and people will recycle more or they'll use less electricity or we can get them to fill out a survey by five points for every sur survey item. It turns out uh, that while there are some people who will do anything for points, that's a small number, but there are people who will do anything for points. A lot of people actually find those systems manipulative, uh, that they are very transparent, uh, that, that it's clear when somebody's trying to get you to do something and it actually builds resentment. So I, I want to raise just a, a, quick, a quick flag that gamification, where it's, where, where it's defined as I'm going to add game-like features, points and leaderboards, actually has a lot of backfire examples. If instead you, you genuinely build a playful spirit, which sometimes doesn't have points and doesn't have badges. So it's not about making everything about points because that's not actually the definition of a game. A game has playful challenges, it has feedback loops, and it has uncertain outcomes. You don't know exactly what it is going to, going to happen. I can talk more about that. But you asked about what's a, a kind of easy example. Well, I would say that, that there's two paths to this. One is to encourage playfulness, because a bunch of the effects of games come from the fact that it opens this space, this attitude of playfulness. Um, and things like open streets, we're going to cut down, uh, shut down a street to cars for a day and bring out pedestrians, bring, bring out folks with bicycles. That's actually in the space of games. So a, a lot of kind of open street movements, a lot of creative placemaking um, have this, uh, this, this approach. Um, it, one of the most powerful sets of effects that we see from games and in terms of public engagement for those is that they create the room to have conversations between residents, you know, a lot of people that live on the same street with their neighbors actually start talking to their neighbors at things like a block party, right? And they're, at the city scale, there are often so many more neighborhood and block parties than people realize that happen thanks to city government. So I think of it at, not as a means to an end, but it's actually the indicator. 
So I would argue a lot of city governments are doing this already. This is why I say governments with small budgets who without a lot of resources, if you think of it as an anchor, you're probably already doing some things in this direction. Um, let me go on, on the other side and just, just name one other example of, of how governments are, are doing a little bit like, uh, with, with play. Games can also be a little bit more structural and tied to data. Um, so uh, a really dry example, but an interesting one out there, is that um, most states and in a growing number of city governments are offering parts of their budgets tied to games. Can you balance the budget? And one of the reasons they do this is they say people don't empathize. They're always like, I need more money for my thing. My thing never gets funded. But they don't realize what are the trade-offs in that thing. This is something that government complains about all the time. Our residents just don't get us. Um, but it turns out lecturing that at them never helps them get it. The, the way they could get it is by trying it themselves. So one of the things that games as systems help us build is this sense of cause and effect by repeatedly taking an action and getting a little bit of feedback. Oh, I tried to do this to balance the budget. That didn't work. I tried this. I tried this. I tried this. And, and a key part is that failure is part of that feedback loop. But it's, it's a safe failure. It's not, it's not like brutal failure. You're thrown out on the street. You lose your job as the city budget person. No, it's that you, you try to balance the budget, try balance the budget, try balance. So it's that you iteratively try to balance the budget 20 or 30 times. If you get people trying to iteratively balance the budget 20 or 30 times, you get really different outcomes in terms of how they have an intuition about what that budget means. So you can do this uh, with a full-on expensive simulation, of course. And, and some people probably hearing this immediately went to the digital and what's my million dollar simulation budget? But you can also do it with Excel sheets. And even, even more playfully, you can actually do this with, with blocks, analog, like big, big um, post-it style blocks of paper uh, at a big community event. You can say, here are the different pieces. And now I'm going to let each person come up. You can, take, you can add something to the budget, but you got to take something else away. And when you take something away, the crowd may react. Oh, no, don't take that away. So it has to have that feedback mechanism. And the crowd watching you try to balance the budget that's your feedback mechanism that I think is, is, is the kind of experience that, that playful systems can create. So again, I'm offering up playful systems as one kind. The other is more of trying to get the playful spirit without the formalism of games. And those are the two ways I'd suggest it, that we think a little bit about games. I think cities can do both of these at some level of technology engagement. Both of them can be very technological. Both of them can be tech minimalist. Getting back to your comments on gamification, I'm curious about your thoughts on community currency strategies as a way to boost hyper-local economic development and engagement. I think it's a, a really interesting strategy. So uh, the example I turned to for this, there was an alternative currency uh, in Macon, Georgia called Macon Money um, that was funded. They brought in some uh, really heavy hitters uh, from the game design world, uh, people that went on to Zynga world. Uh, and, and made made their big bucks there. But but before they did that, they actually helped design this alternative currency. It's in Macon, so it has the Otis Redding on the paper currency because he was from Macon. Um, so it has this kind of local pride sense. Here's the interesting thing: you you get a half of the of the Macon money, um, and you have to find the the matching symbols. As three symbols have to line up along the edge of the currency, and they split them along different zip codes because they wanted people in like the historic African American part of town talking to the newcomers in, in the college neighborhood. So it was a town-gown kind of divide. And the distribution of the currency was causing social mixing. In other words, there was a way in which the 
the capital, the, the money as currency was being exchanged, exchanged for a social currency and social capital. And, and this idea that you weave those systems together, I think is at a higher level of policy design than most of what we're doing for our, our tax rebates, our, our economic investments. And I think it's a, it's a great example of how we do build a sense of place and build social currency while we're also targeting specific businesses. So in this, you can only spend the currency at local businesses in, in a pre-approved set. It allowed for a kind of micro-targeting of where the funds went. Um, and it also uh, built a lot of the kind of social connections uh, and awareness of what the campaign is and where it should go. So I think like for a certain set of investments, this is a better use of economic development funds uh, than we often see anywhere in government. Uh, it, but it's still a playful approach. I would say that most economic development groups in city government are not yet willing to touch this. Uh, and in fact, even in Macon, uh, the, the place that it was understood, it was a cultural project. Uh, so it was designed as a cultural project, despite the fact that it was a it was an injection of liquid currency uh, on the order of of, of sixty seventy thousand dollars that went straight into the economy. You can measure the economic effects, but it it was still the people were just like, oh, I'm not sure we can talk about the fact that we actually uh, boosted the economy uh, through play. So so I'd say we're not quite there yet culturally in terms of people being willing to to uh, actually stand by the actual outcomes we're seeing. So. Making money is the game. Knight Foundation actually helped fund that project as well. It's an interesting example on the more like serious investment. Yeah, I think you'd be interested. Darwin Australia did a larger scale project very similar. So I would get in touch with Joshua Sattler and pick his brain a little bit. We did a podcast with him and covered some of their work on GovLaunch. Um, but Darwin, it's it's similar to what um, Mac and Money was trying to accomplish, um, but theirs is much larger scale and more recent. I'll be back next week with Benjamin and Josh to continue the conversation about playful engagement. So stay tuned for an exciting follow-on episode where we'll talk projects underway in DC and takeaways for others looking to spur more meaningful and inclusive engagement by simply trying to have just a little bit more fun. I'm Lindsay Pika Alfano, and this podcast was produced by GovLaunch, the wiki for local government innovation. You can subscribe to hear more stories like this wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a local government innovator, we hope you'll help us on our mission to build the largest free resource for local governments globally. You can join to search and contribute to the wiki at govlaunch.com. Thanks for tuning in. We hope to see you next time on the GovLaunch podcast.